Welcome to episode 856 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Welcome along to episode 856, the third and last episode of the Mike Editions. It is. We got, we're rolling back the clock again. We're going back to 2012. So another 10 years ago. Or yeah. Just over 10 years ago. So Mike Pig. I love this interview. He is recognised as one of the toughest athletes ever. Here's what Macca had to say about Mike Pig. Mike Pig, in my honest opinion, was the most hardcore racer the sport has ever seen. He was an absolute monster on the bike and had so much heart he was inspiring to watch. He was all heart and pushed himself so hard you could see it in his face. Actually, I think Piggy won most of his races out of sheer heart and is so often an athlete who has forgotten from a great era. Uh, in the late 80s, there was a period where he was almost unbeatable. Uh, he was known for being an amazing biker and all-round good guy. On this month's show, he shares some great stories from his time in the sport. Did I put all that in the show notes? You did. Jeez, I put some I work think, in that uh, No, I think you copied and pasted from somewhere else. No, no. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. John, I wrote that myself. I rang Mac. I said, what do you say about Pack? Pack and he said, mate, I always quote this. Um, fascinating. My yeah. pig. Um, let's just quickly say thank you to our patrons. We will indeed. Uh, so we have got Mandy, T-Mac Towler, Chris the Combustor Apple, and Chrissy the Grinder McKinley. Pig, before we get into the interview, he never won Kona, did he? He got second? No, did no. he get second? He was more of a, a short course. course guy. But he did uh, do Kona, didn't he? He did he, do Kona. He was in the era when they did the Iver. Feeling that he got second um, to Molina when Molina won it. Oh, okay. Let's have a look. Uh, yeah. you are you looking? Yeah, I'll look. Okay. Um, but Pig was known because I don't know if he was necessarily the most talented athlete, was he? No, he he was bloody good. And I, I, the other thing I remember, one of his races was uh, they had a massive sprint finish oh. at the World Championships in. It was on the Gold Coast, uh, and Rick Wells, uh, our Kiwi was racing. That was the first one, wasn't it? It was this second or third. Oh, I thought Baron I thought, I thought won the first one. No, uh, no Aaron and Mark, Mark won the first Rick Wells, right. No, um, Mark won the first one. Rick Wells, it was Rick Wells, Miles Stewart, um, Mike Pig, and a guy Harold Wilson, I think it was. Uh, four of them going into a sprint finish, and like it was a full noise yeah, sprint man. finish. And Pig was right there, and Miles Stewart was the young gun. Rick Wells had been around for quite a while. He was he was bloody good, and Mike Pig was was one of the dominators. And at that moment, uh, you know who won, but would you expect Wells to take out the sprint? Well, no, Wells, Wells didn't get. He, oh, got, okay. he got second, I think. Um, but Wells Miles won the world Stewart, championship, didn't he? He won nineteen ninety, I think. He, he doesn't get much respect here, does he? No, we'll have to have him on a Legends show. In New Zealand, like, like, you know, considering... It was a fledgling sport back then. It wasn't anything compared to what it is yeah, now. No, but but still, no, he, he, he gets yeah, a, a... real deal. Yeah, no, he gets, he gets a, a fair bit. But Mike, Mike Pig, um, I'm just trying to... Wait, wait, so who won that one? Miles Stewart won and, it. And he was a young... Okay. God, he, he might have been 19 or something oh, really? like that. Or, or he, was, he was really young. Oh, wow. Um, so I was just going to try to find... Um, Kona results. Kona results. What year did Molina win it? it was 88, wasn't it? 88. Oh, great podcasting. We're on holiday. Yeah, he, well, I was right. He was second in 1988. He swam eight seconds faster than Molina. He went 
rode 4.37 um, and then ran, a th- they didn't run very fast that year, ran 3.04 uh, to finish 2 minutes and 11 seconds behind Molina. Kenglar was third, Scott Tinley was fourth, Mark Allen was fifth. Even nice. Mark Allen only ran a 2.57. Jeez, really? Yeah. Jeez, Paul Henry Fraser that year. 1988, she ran basically very similar to the, the guys. She ran a 3.07 uh, compared to most of the guys with, you know, just a tickle over three hours. Why was that year slow? Don't know. Don't know. Yeah, yeah. Guys, some blasts in the past in there. Ray Browning, Dirk Ashmanite, Papauli Kuru was in 10th place. They are Paul Henry Fraser won. Aaron Baker was second. Daylight was third. <laughs> it's like Paul Newby Fraser did nine oh one. Aaron Baker was uh, a nine twelve. How many times did Aaron do Kona? Uh, she won it twice. Yeah, but she wasn't a big fan she, of the race, she, was no, she? She got a few podiums. She did, she didn't do it every year. Put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Jan Wanklin was in ninth place. We've interviewed a lot of those names, haven't we? Okay, let's get my pig on. He is an absolute bloody rock star, and I really enjoyed this interview. I still, yeah, get into it. Here we go. Okay, this uh, today's guest is. Uh, I'm actually going to start today with a with a quote from um, a Mecca quote. A Mecca quote. He says, "Mike Pig, in my honest opinion, was the most hardcore race of the sport has ever seen. He was an absolute monster on the bike and had so much heart. It was inspiring to watch." He was all heart and pushed himself so hard you could see it in his face. Actually, I think Piggy won most of his races on sheer heart and so often an athlete who has forgotten from this great era. But he's not forgotten today and uh, we're going to talk today with, uh, with Mike Pig. So welcome along to the show, Mike. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Mike, you know, in, in terms of your, um, uh, you know, you're around a lot before sort of the internet, so a lot of people don't know a huge amount about you. Um, these days, you know, everybody gets so much coverage and, and have blogs and websites and uh, their life histories on there. But you know, in terms of your history, you know, I, I read that you, you know, you're into swimming and, and, and running um, when you're sort of going through school. But, but sort of tell us a bit about what you did pre-triathlon and, and what sort of level you got to. Um, my, my whole career for triathlon started when I was 10 years old and, uh, my parents, uh, my dad was mayor of, mayor of the city of Arcata and he got this pool put in. And so he wanted the numbers to look good and he made me join the swim team. And, uh, I did that for four years and, and that's when I got bit by the bug of enjoying working out and traveling and seeing the world through your races and through training. Um, so I swam four years, got into high school, ran cross country. I was no superstar, but still worked hard and I had a lot of good friends and a good coach and it just helped me again, enjoy being physically fit and testing your body. Still no idea I wanted to be a triathlete or the sport had really even started yet. Um, and I, I finished high school out, played basketball there too and track and field and swam a little bit. Then I went to a junior college, started biking to school, swimming at lunch, and running cross-country after school. And about that time, I saw Iron Man on TV. And I go, man, that looks like the ultimate challenge. And uh, I just went from there. So, you know, when you, when you say you, you didn't reach any amazing levels, oh, so, sometimes people are a bit um, modest, in, modest in their achievements. Like, you know, did you, what were your sort of times at, at um, say, high school level or college level? What, were, you, were you sort of just local level, regional level or, or national level? You know, my best time was a sophomore in the mile, 437. Mm-hmm. And I never broke, I was like 10.02 or 10.03 for the two mile. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then I did pretty good my senior year in cross country. I was able to go to the, the state meet or the North, North state meet. Mm. But what a wake up call when I was down there. I mean, those guys were opening <laughs> up at four thirty miles and I was sucking bad and never saw the front after that. So, so at that age, you know, you knew you loved sport and you knew, you know, you were pretty passionate about the challenge of what sport and the physiology around it and all the rest of it. But you probably didn't see yourself being a professional athlete. Would that be true to say? Uh, totally true to say. I mean, when I uh, saw Iron Man and saw Dave Scott performing on there, I just saw the challenge, and I had no idea that I was going to make this a professional career. But in seeing that, and I was a little bit lost at school. I was in my second and a half year at a junior college, trying to figure out what career I wanted to pursue. And I go, I do know what I want to do. I want to do that race. And uh, <laughs> so I dropped everything, lived at home, and my motto became: swim, bike, and run, sleep, and eat. Uh, to get ready for that race. And in getting ready for that race, I had some good performances and just started climbing the ladder, started getting close to pros, and, and I ended up being, um, I think, seventh in Ironman in 1985. Well, that, and that was on, on debut, so that was presumably your first Ironman you did. And, and to get seventh, seventh is, uh, you know, it's a pretty staggering performance in your, in your, in your first time in Kona. Well, the, the, actually, my first Ironman was in New Zealand. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. I didn't know yes, that. Yes, down in Auckland because I wanted to qualify for Ironman. Oh, yeah. so you had to qualify back in those days? Uh, some reason, I had to go to New Zealand to do an Ironman. Yeah. And I thought I was to qualify. It's been so far back, I can't remember. Yep. And also, in the same year, I did a race called the World's Toughest, which was at Lake Tahoe. Yeah. And I got to meet uh, Scott Molina and see him perform. Um. And so those two big races, and that that uh, world's toughest was a God. It was an eleven hour race, <laughs> hundred twenty mile bike ride at six thousand feet and plus. Um, so that really got me ready for Hawaii. So tell us a bit about that race because it's, it's a race I've, I've heard mentioned before, but um, we don't really know much about it. Where, where was it held, and and did it carry quite a bit of prestige? Because I know Molina won it um, one year at least. Um, tell us a bit about that. Um. It was a, a big-time race back then, and uh, still the sport was new. Um, they also invited, like, Greg LeMond to do a relay, mm -hmm. and so he did the biking segment. So it was exciting to be near Greg LeMond, and yeah. also exciting to have Scott Molina. And another guy I remember is Grant Boswell and some other big names at the time that had been in the sport for one or two years. And it was a 2.4-mile swim in, like, 55-degree water. The, the storms <laughs> kicked up the water the night before, so it was freezing ass. So Pete. <laughs> People were jumping out of the water, out of their wetsuits, into a hot tub before they got on their bike. Oh, really? So, and so it took about 10 or 15 miles to warm up on the bike. Yeah. And also they were so new about the sport that they weighed us about mile 60 in the, in the bike race to see if we had lost weight, yeah. if we could to go on. And I passed that one because for uh, food in that race, I was eating uh, bananas. And I'd eaten like 10 bananas because that's the only energy bar I knew of at that time. <laughs> And so I passed the scale test. Um, and then it was probably the hardest, so most soreness I've ever experienced in a race because the last six miles of a 27-mile run, you came from 9,000 feet down to 6,000 feet down wow. pavement. Oh, really? And the, and the old quads were just hurting bad. <laughs> and to give you an idea, I considered sleeping in a jacuzzi that night, the whole night. <laughs> because I couldn't lay in bed on any one quad or anything. It was the most miserable night after that race. <laughs> That's, that sounds... You know, that was 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Let's see, 30. 
Yeah, about 25 years ago. Yeah, and I still still haven't forgot it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, you cracked out your first Kona, seventh place. Um, what's sort of going through your mind at that stage? You know, um, you know, you're thinking, holy moly, you know, I can actually make something out of this, or is, is the pro career you're sort of starting to go through your mind? What What are you thinking? Well, I think what helped is I got a phone call um, from a company called NTTC, the National Triathlon Training Camp, and they wanted me to be on their team from that performance. And they were promising a $10,000 stipend or something at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, also I made some prize money, you know, $500 here, 500 there. So I was mm-hmm. getting a taste of professionalism. And so I said, well, let's pursue it one more year and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was for the next three years. Let's pursue it one more year. And then 1987, I got my big hit, and I won our national championships uh, against Mark Allen. Um, so that's when I made it big time and broke the big four. Uh, and in terms of that year, because um, Melina sent me a few, through a few notes here to, to help me out with today's interview, and he said, you know, he thought you turned pro in '86, but '87 was a year you really started crushing, and you and you took Melina took second place to you seven times that season, and uh, and as you said, um, that was a year where you where you really break broke through. So back back in, in that, at that stage, you know. Um, you you were able to be making a, a you know at that stage making a decent sort of career out of it. The money was okay in terms of um, actually making it a, a living. Um, yeah, it, it just kind of grew each year. You know, first started maybe ten grand for that one year, and the next year up to twenty or thirty, and the next year um, when I won that national championships, it just launched, and uh, you know I was making over a hundred thousand uh, mm. doing what, doing what I love. Mm. Um, and prize money was getting better, but most of the money was coming from sponsorship, mm-hmm. and that's what really helped me in there. But it just—you have to win to get that sponsorship. Mm-hmm. You have to be in the top three day in, day out. Mm-hmm. And at, at that time, we were racing anywhere from twenty to twenty-five times a year. Uh, trying to fo- follow Scott Molina's example, <laughs> <laughs> the king of overtraining and overdoing it. But gosh, he was a total inspiration to me. I mean. How I learned how to train was open up Traffic Magazine and read about Scott Molina and what he was doing because he was just killing it, yeah. killing it, you know, almost to a point where it probably hurt his career. Yeah. Um, but he was a great, uh, um, a great person to follow. Uh, as long as I started listening to myself, once I started crossing that line of overtraining, you know. Yeah. As, a, as a pro at the time, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of areas we can talk around the idea of you guys didn't really know much. As you say, you're, you're one of the top guys out there and you're reading Triathlete Mag to see what the other guys are doing. Um, but also, uh, like, how do you make sure you're financially are kind of being responsible if you money to make sure you can, you know, once you're earning 100 grand a year, it's okay. But in those first couple of years, were you good with your money around budgeting and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was... I was staying at home for one thing, and so I had a room taken care of, and you know I was making five hundred here, five hundred there. I, mean, I remember my winnings were paying for my next plane ticket to go to Dallas or to go to <laughs> Florida or whatever. It was just right on the fringe the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I worked summers in 1986 to help help out then to get a little extra cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the most support I got was from my dad helping me buy my first plane ticket down to New Zealand mm-hmm. uh, to the Auckland race. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just remember seeing your country, being able to be down there and see the country and have your milk served to your houses in jars and <laughs> um, figuring out your roundabouts without going around 15 times and getting lost. <laughs> um, 
so I was washing my pennies, and like I said, the motto was swim, bike, and run, sleep, and eat. It wasn't about partying on weekends and spending money there or, or buying expensive cars. It was just train yeah. and, uh, and see what you could do. And so 87, you know, you, you mentioned there beating Mark Allen and, and, and breaking the top four and, and having, you know, Molina saying you had a great season. But then 88, Molina was saying you just absolutely crushed every, everyone, um, especially at St. Croix. And, you know, that's a, a race that still carries a, a good amount of prestige as part of the 70.3 series. But he said you just took all the preems and took home around about 42,000 US that day. I mean, he was wondering, did that, that win change things for you and, and your mentality? And, and how you dealt with sponsors and everything what, that that big big win of eighty eight. Um, well, eighty eight, I won fifteen. Let's see, it's either fifteen out of twenty or twenty out of twenty five. Yeah, fifteen out of twenty, was, it was. Yeah. yeah. And then I was second in three of those, and then I bombed in two. Yeah. Um, so it was a phenomenal year. I just made it to the top, and I was able to train and race and use my races as part of your training to maintain the fitness throughout the whole year um i just i was firing on all pistons but what's it like as an athlete um it's just a dream come true yeah to and you you know it's funny you're firing on all pistons but you still question yourself every race can i do it again can i do it again and so that questioning always held back in the back of my mind when i was training and, and working out and still trying to stay on top throughout the whole year I'm sorry, is this just always, you look at athletes, you know, we always dream of those dream days, you know, most of us, you know, if you do 10 races, you probably have two or three days where you have really great days and then you average and the rest, but to have a year where you pretty much everything you touch is gold, it must just have been a phenomenal kind of booster within self. It was, it was a total booster, but uh, you go into uh, winter and you take your four or five weeks off, let your body recover. And then you wonder, if you, at least I did, and just let you know how I think. I wonder if I could do it again. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you know, I, I was always big and questioning myself, can I do it again? Can I do it again? And that kind of helped drive me in my workouts, I think, as part of the motivation. I wanted to do it again. I wanted to be at the top. And you always question yourself until the only time you feel good is when you cross that finish line and you knew you did it for the day. Mm. And then four or five days later, you're wondering, can I do it again? Can I do it again? So it was almost like doubt was a driver. Yeah. Yeah. And just take us back to 87 when you beat Mark Allen. What was that like? Because, you know, Allen was kind of the golden boy of the sport. And, uh, you know, to to come up being an upper and with, you know, three years of starting the sport, you're kind of beating the guy who's one of the legends. What was that race like for you? Um, it's a day I'll never forget. It's probably um, the first time... I remember where things gone quiet at the finish line. Oh, really? And I'll get to to that. But, you know, I had a, a phenomenal swim, got out of the water, and just started doing the old pig thing where I could ride away from people and either put a minute and a half to three minutes on people in a, in a 40K bike. But at the same time, I always knew when Mark Allen's around or other athletes that I wasn't the strongest runner. And so I had to run scared for 10K. And um, in that race, Harold Robinson, another great athlete and a great friend, came up beside me in the run and so him and i were dogging it out for the middle of the 10k i mean just where we were pushing each other and oh god is he, is he gonna crush me or is he pulling away and then i'd hang in there and always on the fringe and finally harold cracked with about a k to go and then i look thinking thinking i have it and i look back as i get onto this road off the fairways i look back and there's mark allen with a half mile to go wow 
and just totally struck fear into me and said, I'm not giving this up. And the last half mile to Mark Allen at a national championships. And uh, that's where I think people started noting the gutty effort. Um, I just dug deep and the last 400 yards went quiet. And uh, all I could feel was a tingling in my fingers, given everything I got. I mean, I didn't even want to look back. I just gave 100%. And uh, actually, I did look back. I don't want to be lying here. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, cross that finish line, and then wham, all the pain hits you for about a minute or two that you've been putting off uh, for that uh, last 400-yard uh, sprint. And I had Mark Allen under my belt which nice. was a great feat and thank God Mark Allen was the athlete he was to give me that opportunity to race him and, and have that challenge and push myself that far you talk about going quiet do you want to give us more on that uh, there's a time and I've hit it one time in um, Australia uh, maybe three or four times throughout my career where you're just giving one a true 100% and uh, things you know I can only be quiet for like 300 yards or 400 yards or 200 yards whatever it is but everything goes quiet. You don't hear the crowd anymore, and you're just sprinting for all you're worth. Wow. Nice. Yeah. So, so tell us a bit about, you know, 88 was obviously a golden season in terms of, you know, 15, 15 wins, but um, obviously that 88 was a year Molina got his, his um, Kona title, and, and you were second there. So tell us a bit mm-hmm. about that race, and um, I, I, I haven't seen the splits. You know, getting information on those those races is, is quite hard. Um, were you close? Did, was it a was it a was it a close race or, or not? Um, well, as far as Ironman, it was close, but it was still a two to three minute gap between Molina. Um, I had a phenomenal swim. I think I did a forty nine, broke fifty, got mm-hmm. out of the water in the top three, which is was great for me. I was really a good drafter in the water, mm-hmm. and um, got on the bike, and I I got some wisdom. Um, from previous Ironmans, I need to really follow my heart watch in that race. Because uh, before, I've you can just get out there and race and almost think like you're in a USTS. Yeah. <laughs> and miles mile seventy, you start doing the death march on your on your bike. You know and that's not good. <laughs> so um, I learned in training the previous weeks before that I need to stay under 165 for the bike ride in order to have a uh, a good run. And I actually made it to 106 before a low blood sugar kind of went over me. Hmm. Um, and then right when I hit low blood sugar, here comes Scott Molina. <laughs> and he just zooms by me and puts two minutes on me in the next six miles while I'm trying to get some sugar into my body. Yeah. And then we just played cat and mouse with him having a two to four minute gap throughout the whole run. And Ken Glaw came up and him and I were battling back and forth. Um, and you're on the fringe the whole time, whether you're going to bonk or not, especially in the last nine miles. And I developed a little mantra saying, cookies and Coke, cookies and Coke. <laughs> and that's how I got home the last. You don't go to Coke early. You stay away from the Coke the first uh, 15 miles. But, God, that last nine, you're going direct drive on sugar. And, and Coke <laughs> seems to be one of the better sports drinks out there. <laughs> nice. did, you, did you ever feel you were going to catch Melina or did you – you know, I'm, like I'm sure you were chasing as hard as you could, but did you? Was it always he was just a little bit far off that you weren't going to get there that day, or did, within it, did you think, "Well, my chances"? Um, you know, you always think that you're going to win, yep. and you're always pushing to win because you never know. Uh, I knew Scott Lane was a better runner than I. I knew he had a hard time in the heat, and so I, I, I thought he could crash any time in the run. And Scott Molina ran a steady race, and through all those years of great training, he he just maintained a steady um, run. Mm. 
and my run was nothing to brag about. I mean, my run was a 305 or something. Mm. Ironman. If, if I had done like any any other run that good Ironman athletes do, you know, 255 or 250 or better, I would have won that race. But I just didn't have that in my quiver. Mm. So it was my fastest marathon to date. And, and uh, I've never gone faster in a marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, he made me push 100% again to the finish line. And I thank Scott for that. So if 88 was you know, a bit of a golden, golden season, um, the, f- the first time I really saw you when I started the sport was in 91 when you had uh, the sprint finish in, in the Gold Coast. We'll come to that in a moment. But um, w- what about you know, following on in 1989, 1990? Did that, did that golden run continue? No, I, I got I got dealt a bad card in sport, and uh, I developed a bacteria in my stomach from my travels. And I was in uh, I was in Dallas, and I was wind testing uh, t- in the wind tunnel uh, on the bike, and just learning about, much about aerodynamics as I could. So I had a two day stop there, and I got on the plane to head to Sincroy, and I picked up a bacteria that I carried for the next three or four years that I had to deal with, and it totally changed uh, my constitution, my digestive constitution. So I went from instead of counting miles and time um, in my runs, I went to uh, counting how many porta potties would be on the run <laughs> along the way, and it'd be nice to have four to five porta potties in an eight mile run, mm. and uh, it was really tough. Um, it took about three months to figure out that I had a bacteria. Then I took antibiotics to get rid of it. Um, and then when I took that, it still came back not as strong as it was as an athlete in 1988. Yeah. And so, I mean, the blessing is I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about nutrition. And uh, so that was a blessing, but it sure made it hard as an athlete. Uh, one of the things I learned is how important it is to have an empty stomach when the gun goes off. Mm-hmm. And so the the timing of your dinners uh, for, for, uh, before the race the next day uh, was essential for me to race well. Mm-hmm. Uh, still had a lot of wins that year, but boy, it was tough, and it really um, it really shut down my Ironman career. I don't think I've ever come back to have such a good Ironman. I tried four more times, and then when Paulie Newby Frazier almost kicked my ass, I said, "You know what? It's probably <laughs> it's probably time just to stick with the sprints and half Ironmans because it ain't happening here." But was it a hard thing? Because you know, like in America in particular, the, the the Ironman, especially kind of the World Champs, kind of is triathlon, really, isn't it? And so, you know, like if as as an athlete, that's the kind of the dream to win, particularly around that time, and and to have that taken away from you. And I know you went on to still be very successful in, in the short course racing, but was it hard? To swallow that pill? Uh, yeah, it was because in that era in the 80s, it was do it all. It was be a good short course athlete, be a good Ironman, be a good half Ironman, do it all, whether you'd be at Nice, France, Hawaii Ironman, or the national championships in the U.S. Um, and that started changing in the 90s where you had to become more of a specialist thanks to ITU and, and, and the number of athletes getting into the sport. Um, people started being labeled as Ironman athletes and, and uh, sprint athletes, and so that all changed. But in the beginning, we wanted to be a, do it all, and so it was hard not getting Ironman. And you know, Ironman was never in my cards because I just was not a good runner. Yep. You know, my fastest 10k ever was a 31:22 on the track solo, and I'm not solo. I had people racing me, but mm. um, without a bike or a swim in front of it. Mm. And uh, Hawaii is a, a running race. Mm. 
So, uh, as I said, the, the first time I sort of saw pictures of you was uh, seeing the podium in, in, on the Gold Coast, the 91 World Champs, and there's Miles Stewart standing atop of the podium, um, pretty, looking pretty happy with himself, <laughs> and then there's I think you and Rick Wells standing there looking pretty glum, and um, I'm not sure if they gave you second equal or, or uh, whether, whether you were second and third, but um, tell us a bit about that race, because it had a fairly interesting finish. Um, that race was a, another great race, another one of those times where I went quiet and, uh, you know, had a, gr- a good bike ride and a couple more people were with me off the bike. Um, with that much talent in one arena, it was hard to get away from people. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get 10 guys that can ride and there's a little more wind breakage out there. Not that anyone is drafting. It's just there's more motivation and a little bit of a break. And so got off the bike with uh, one or two athletes, and then um, two or three more athletes joined us. And before you know it, we had this huge showdown between Harold Robinson, Miles Stewart, Richard Wells, and I think Rob Mackle was in the pack for a little bit long mm. for a while. Mm. And it made for some good photos. Um, I knew how well Miles could sprint, and running was my weakness. Mm. And so I made a go at it earlier, like maybe at 400 to 500 yards, which you normally don't go that early. Um, but I knew I better go early if it's going to happen. And for a minute, I thought I had it. The crowd was there. I was running 100%. And then all of a sudden, here comes Speedy Gonzalez smiles <laughs> right by me. And there's not a damn thing I can do about it. Yeah. And so I still running as hard as I could. And all of a sudden, here comes Richard Wells. And I go, God damn it. <laughs> and I'm so pissed that, you know, second's bad enough, but go from first to third, you know, hurts worse. And so I gave one more effort, and they gave Richard and I a, uh, a tie. Yeah, I thought so. And boom, here comes the pain again as soon as you cross that line. <laughs> but uh, those experiences, win or lose, you just don't forget you know, to have the crowd and give 100% performance and have people like Miles and Richard Wells push you to the, the 100% is, is what I live for. So that's you know that's a, a fair amount on your racing. We'll sort of come back to to you know post uh, post ninety one shortly. But in terms of the training side of things, as you mentioned, you were regarded as um, a legend on the bike. You know, you just went out there and, and then drilled it, and uh, and that's often how you set up your a lot of your race wins. How did you, you know, become so good on the bike? Well, uh, I think the first thing to say is maybe I don't know what the term is, but I was set up to bike. Whether I had a long femur, a short femur, or whatever, or big quads, I don't know. But I was set to bike. Uh, even my, even when I began, as, you know, I ran cross country for six years before I got on the bike. But I got on the bike and I took to it like crazy. And then the second, I had uh, great places in Humboldt County, Arcata, where I grew up, to just climb hills, work on your descents, um, battle headwinds, work with tailwinds. I had rolling hills. I had the variety pack. That you just can't believe where, you know, it's nothing like Florida where all you can do is freaking sit on your saddle and burn your crotch and ride flat for 100 miles, you know. I had it all to really develop my skills as a, a strong cyclist. And so I think part of it was my area and part of it was the one gift God gave me was to bi- ride fast. It sure wasn't to run fast, but it was to bike fast, you know. And and then I put in the miles. You know, you got to put in 200, 300 miles to learn how to bike. Um 
So that was another part of the ingredients. You, you seem to be one of the guys who kind of took advantage of in the, you, more technology like your aero bars and, and you had kind of a unique body position, Melina was saying, on the bike and everyone tried to copy you, which made it painful for them. But, you know, were you someone who was driven by how can technology help me get better at the sport? Uh, was I – say the question again? Were you, were you driven by how technology can help you get faster? Um. Not to a fault, but yeah, you want to use everything you could to go fast. Mm. And uh, those uh, oh, Scott bars that came out, you know, when this one guy, Andrew McMartin, started beating us on the bike <laughs> by a minute or two, and just because he slapped bars on it, pisses you off pretty quick, and you better have those <laughs> bars better have those bars the next weekend, you know? Yeah. And then I started doing my own test of the bars, and gosh, this is a half mile, this is a mile faster with these bars on. But then you had to learn how to ride in that position, and it was really hard on your freaking crotch bone, I call it. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, what do I want to say there? <laughs> then I then I even trained harder because of that goddamn position. It was so painful <laughs> to sit on that bone and ride, and it rotates your hips up. It lets more blood flow into your legs, but to sit on that bone is painful. A lot of people were, were riding on it by sitting in their saddle. But man, I would dance back and forth between riding right on that crotch bone or, or if you're climbing a hill, go back on your butt and climb like a normal. And so I was able to get pull a lot of power um, out of that position, long story short. Melina was saying you really went for a, for a forward um, saddle position. You know, that was something that came in <clears throat> around that time was is to have that forward seat and then really be right off the tip of the seat. Did, is that something that being on the aero bars just made you, com- well, not necessarily comfortable, but sort of pulled you forward, or was that a position you were consciously trying to get to? I was always searching for, for the most power, and we didn't really have uh, tools at that time to measure our power. And uh, so I just used my speedometer and feel. And But also, we were trying to adapt a road bike to these new aero bars to make it feel good. And again, in Humboldt County, I, not, I had to climb hills. So I had, you had to have your climbing position, which a forward position is not good. But then you start busting a headwind and you want to get in your aero position and, and ride forward on the seat saddle. So I basically called it dancing on the seat. And basically you're dancing with your crotch, uh, <laughs> finding that sweet, that sweet, magical, powerful part. And then the bikes kept evolving and started pushing people up to 75 degrees, up to 77 degrees, 78 degrees seat angle. And uh, which is good just if you're living in Florida and, and riding flat and you can learn to do that. But then the bike felt like crap when you're trying to climb a hill or descend. Yeah. So I was always looking for the magical spot on a air, uh, time trial bike. You, you, you talked about um, when you were in high school and stuff having some, some really good coaches. But, you know, in that triathlon era in the, in the 80s and going into the 90s, um, I'm picking there weren't that many triathlon coaches. So other than reading about Molina in, uh, in Triathlete magazine, how did you sort of come up with your, your program? Did you, did you have any advisors or did you just sort of make it up? Well, I had a swimming background, so that was very helpful. At 10 years of swimming, I knew how to write my own swim workouts. But I was always looking for coaching in uh, swimming drills to uh, improve my stroke. Cycling, I just read Greg LeMond's book and just uh, learned from all the guys that I was training with. You know, um, triathletes were a very friendly bunch. And the guys that you were going to race with for five grand on the weekend would train with you during the midweek. Mm-hmm. And so they were a great group of guys 
to hang out with and learn from. So you always talk about, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? And they're very open people. And I really am grateful for the uh, sport of triathlons and the people that it, it attracted. And um, I worked with a, a coach named Jim Hunt, who was uh, uh, the coach for Humboldt State University. And uh, he worked on my technique and got the most improvement on I'm running through watching my step and my step count. Mm-hmm. And so I learned a lot from him. And then Phil Maffetone, which I, people you might have heard of, worked with Mark Allen a lot and a lot, a lot of good other athletes got me in tune with my heart and learned uh, about the power of aerobic training and uh, helped me find a, a, a balance between anaerobic and an- anaerobic. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I say get in touch with my feminine side. I mean, it, it takes a lot of balls to learn how to sit there at 155 heart rate trying to develop your engine yeah. over th- three or four month time. But yeah. that's what you need to do to get ready for Ironman. Uh, so um, uh, those are the coaches. Around that time as well, you know, like if we go back to when you first started, which is like 85, 86, you know, like the sport was just so new and, and no one really knew much about nothing. So you were really in that kind of trial and error stage. Like how did you know what to try and what not to try? Or did you pretty much just try everything and hopefully it worked? And if it didn't, you just got rid of it quickly. Like, you know, maybe nutrition as well in those areas. Oh, I got so many stories and nutrition about things I tried. Um, <laughs> you're trying everything. I mean, all the way from beet juice and stuff to uh, try to get as much good vegetables into your body to um, 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 protein. I got really big into protein for a while. Or one time I didn't cook my turkey burger very well and I was throwing <laughs> up out both ends. I mean, I was trying everything. Um, let's see. Now back to your question again. What, what, what about any race nutrition that went bad, like actually in the race? I usually was pretty good there because I tried out so much um, in training. I guess the big time that um, stuff went bad would be for Ironman. Hmm. And back then, you know, bananas was our, like I said, our best uh, sports bar because there were no sports bars out. But I was trying to make smoothies out there because I thought smoothies digested the best. <laughs> but once, once things things started getting hot out there in Ironman, your smoothie went from 50 degrees to 80 degrees. It doesn't digest very well anymore. So uh, smoothies got thrown out. Then we tried this product called Exceed, uh, which is designed yeah. for people that don't digest food very well. Yeah, And um, that seemed to work. But Mark Allen, I watched him throw that up. I was riding right beside him, watching him throw up Exceed, and I'm drinking the same stuff. And <laughs> he's having problems with it, and I'm hanging on to it, kind of. And So it was a big hit and miss out there. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I think I had like 10 to 17 bananas in the World's Toughest Race. Uh-huh. And so those are some of the horror stories of trying things out. Also, a thing I can learn and it'd be nice to share with you guys is that you might find something that works one year and you start living on it in your training and then it seemed like your body would get tired of it after a year or so or six months and then you have to shift gears to something else. It's like you lost the enzymes in your stomach to break that stuff down that once was your silver bullet and now it was starting to give you side aches and cramps, you know. So you're – and the other thing is you you age too. When you're in your 20s, you freaking can digest anything. Mm. And then you get in your 30s and you got to be really careful about what you're eating. Your digestive system is not as strong as it used to be. And so there was a lot of learning and assessing yourself and, and making changes. Oh, that's the fun and games. What, motivation for you, you know. Um, 
Melina, you, you put Melina up on a pedestal saying, oh, yeah, we watched what he was doing and, uh, and I tried to emulate that and, and, and make it better. But in his, his view, you, you know, you were um, one of the people that trained the hardest if, you know, out of anybody out there. So what, what was it that, you know, deep down motivated you to, to get out there and just in, in training and in racing to, you know, you, you often had a grimace on your face and seemed like you were able to take it to a level that other people weren't. So what deep down was, was making you tick? I think the one thing that I hold inside is when I cross that finish line, win or lose, I never want to... Um, beat myself up for not giving it my best whether it was in training or on that race and I just hold that one little simple thought is when I cross that line and I lost a Miles Stewart or I lost a Scott Molina in Ironman you know a lot of people beat themselves up and get down and granted I get down on myself a little bit but at the same time I knew that was my best and 100% for that day and so instead of sitting on the TV and sitting on the couch watching TV when you should be out doing a 50 or 100 mile bike ride I was out there doing it, and so when I did race, I knew that was 100%, and that's what I wanted to carry with me. And so, like, you know, like, did you actually have strategies? You know, we often talk on the show, we actually had a question on our other show recently around, you know, how can you train yourself to work at higher intensities? And it seems like it's a bit of a character trait with you that you just kind of installed in you, but did you even, you know, when you're out training by yourself and it's a really tough day on the bike, what did you do to make sure you could maintain real high intensity, you know, that, that you seem to kind of live in? Oh, I have a lot of tricks, but I'll, I'll give you one. One of my tricks is called the sunset ride. And you uh, you take off so late in the afternoon and you get yourself out about 50 or 60 miles. And then you turn around when you know you got about two hours or 215 to get back yeah. before it gets dark. And you're just racing against the sun so you have some light to get home. <laughs> Uh, so that's one technique. Um, um, another thing I did is I had these times all over my area. I had records, personal records. Yep. And so there was always a race going on on a given day, whether it was an aerobic record or an anaerobic record. And so there was meaning in every workout that I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, one example, uh, five 500s in the pool. And I do this about every six weeks. I do five 500s. And I'd descend them, and I was trying to go for the world record on the last one, and my world record was 514, um, but that's after I descended one, and I've been doing that for four or five years, these five 500s, and, and setting up for a great PR, and uh, so I think keeping times out there, keeping yourself on track, you know, I used to also stare at my speedometer and say, can I get another half mile an hour out of this? How can I get another half mile? Can I slide up on my crotch, get another half mile? Can I tuck in a little bit tighter? Can I grab a different gear? So my mind was always going, looking for tricks to be faster. And I also, um, I just love the sport so much that it, it came natural is another thing I guess I could say. So, when you, uh, so, so for example, when you do those five 500s, um, what do you do? How do you deal with it? If you know, obviously, well, maybe you did see the P- PR each time, but how do you deal with it if you if you weren't on on your top game and you weren't setting a PR that that particular time? Um, I just had a simple. There's good days and bad days, and no, I didn't get a PR every time, but at least it was out there for me to try to get. Mm-hmm. And um, there'd be day there'd be days I go to the pool and I feel like crap. 
and think there's no way anything's going to happen. And I'd hit a PR that day, unbelievably, after you blow out the carbon and start loosening up and boom, you find a rhythm and all of a sudden you got a PR. There's other days you go to the pool and you think you're, you're God, you're a superstar, and you're going to set, set your PR and you don't even come close. Yeah. <laughs> mm. And so I said, go figure. You know? So I said, hey, just come here and do your homework and if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You still know you gave it your best and that's how I dealt with it. What, what about the motivation of, of the other athletes around you? Because the, the time that you came on the scene, you know, the big four were, you know, established. S- sort of established and you, and you were sort of just, just in behind them in terms of when you entered into the sport. Did, did it ever bug you that you, you sort of weren't considered, you know, part of the big five? Because, you know, you were beating those guys on a consistent basis, you know, especially like 87, 88. 87, 88. Did, that, did that bug you or did that, did that motivate you to, to, to beat the big four? Um, it never bu- it bugged me. I mean, I got my big limelight in '88 with Trafley of the Year, so I, I felt like I arrived, and um, and I just enjoyed having those icons out there: Scott Tinley, Dave Scott, Mark Allen, Scott Molina, to the carrot to chase after. I think the first one I got was um, either Scott Molina or Dave Scott. And then the second one was Scott Tinley, mm-hmm. and they were just like marks on your bike. You know, here's one more athlete, pro athlete that you wanted to knock off. And then there was Scott Molina next, and then 87 hitting Mark Allen was like, all right, I've beaten all four of the best athletes. And that was a, a very warm feeling inside because I know I, I worked really hard for that, and it was nice to uh, – fortunate enough to be there and do that you know imagine at that time you know you guys were spending a lot of time with each other you know i imagine as you're racing 25 races a year you're training a lot during the week what are some of the good stories or memories you have from around you know maybe outside races and friendships you developed and some fun stories that you may recall from that time um it was you know it's such a treat to be feel like you're superman yeah and and that's what you felt like. I mean, you could do some ungodly things, you know. Um, and to do that with Scott Molina, Mark Allen, and Kenny Souza and Greg Welch, um, Jeff Devlin, I mean, Jimmy Riccatello, I, I, Rob Mackerel. I mean, there's so many guys that I've trained with and just did epic uh, big rides or big runs or uh, radical swims. Uh, there's really so many stories. I don't know where to start. But to have those guys by your side and uh, – and be, be friends, even though you're going to race them the next weekend. It was a, it just means we have a phenomenal sport, and a, and a lot of good athletes came to it. Was it was it hard when, like, you, let's say, you know, like, and you would probably experience it as well, when you know, like, suddenly you're not going so well, and one of your good mates is really going well, or vice versa? Is, was there conflict in relationships around that? You know, because I imagine, let's say, you've been, you know, coming up and coming, you've met some guys, and suddenly you're beating them all, and they may be having a bit of a downturn. Was was were those relationships ever a problem in those times? Um, no, there wasn't really any big uh, relationship issues out there. I think the only the biggest thing is Mark Allen was kind of a secretive kind of trainer. Yep. And he, he would only come out and play when he was ready. Oh, really? And you rarely ever saw Mark Allen on a weekday. Really? And uh, I didn't really realize. It took me three or four years to figure that out. But uh, he was ready to play every time he came out. And, and <laughs> so it was almost like – he was, Plus, he was a solid horse. I mean, he might have came out on a 50% day. He was so solid, though, he still made it look like 100, you know. Um, but, uh, no, there's no bads no bads with anyone. I mean, we trained day in, day out. People would room with you. 
Um, I roomed with Jimmy Riccatello. I roomed with Greg Welch. I roomed with uh, Rob Mackle. And, God, you could just help each other become better athletes. Um, you know, I save people anywhere from six to three months getting ready for the season or stay fit during the season. So to tell us, we got up to sort of 1991. Um, tell us about 1991 and, and beyond how things went for you. Um, and, and when was the time that you sort of uh, hung up the bike? Um, yeah, after 91, it starts becoming a blur. <laughs> and, so uh, I couldn't find a huge amount on you after that in terms of doing my research. Yeah, you know, ITU was coming in, so that kind of changed the sport. You know, they took away my silver bullet, yeah. and that was time trialing. And so I wasn't very happy about ITU and, and their politics. And so that issue was coming up. Um, and I was getting older. Um, another thing, uh, you know, I, I learned about the aerobic thing and, and balancing with that. And uh, I think another thing came up is I, I broke my foot, and it took took me out for a whole year to, to heal a fifth metatarsal. Yeah. But kind of a blessing because then I had twins, and I got to watch, watch my kids grow up. Nice. When they were about two years old or a year and a half old. So just a lot of transition was going, and I was getting older, and, and I still trying to look for the love into the sport. And um, it finally came down to, I guess the best thing is to come down and talk about is to coming to the conclusion of hanging up your bike. And I just couldn't get the sugar back in my body to put in the workouts that I used to be able to do. And I would go on a 60-mile bike ride or 50-mile bike ride and try to crank it out at good tempo and be wiped for a day and a day and a half. Whereas back in my youth, well, I'd come back the next day and, and throw another hard punch in and maybe get four or five hard days in a row. Um, and before I'd have to shut it down and let the, let things recover a little bit. So uh, it was getting hard at the age of 37 to get sugar back in the body to recover. Uh, kids were growing up, and I knew, you know, starting to get thirds and fifths and sevenths that the sponsorship was dying down, and, and the writing was on the wall and said, you know what, I've been doing this for 17 years. It might be a good time to hang it up and, and uh, try to do something else. And so, so when was that? Uh, I think in 2000 or 2001, yeah. one of those. And, um, you know, often when when people give up, we've seen a number of the top guys. You know, you look at Melina, Mark Allen, Dave Scott, and um, maybe Tinley to a lesser extent with his clothing, but they, but they all sort of stayed um, fairly well entrenched in the sport in terms of being either coaching or media work. Um, you know, you seemed seemed to drop off the sport. Maybe that was just because um, we, you know, we, we didn't get a lot of the American media. But did you intentionally sort of drop off the away from the sport, or was it um, sort of did you just go in a different direction? Um, well, I think one thing I learned about my personality: I'm an all or nothing kind of guy. Yep. And uh, once I was done being professional. Um, I stepped away, and not that I hung up my bike. I, you know, I still worked out five to six days a week, an hour here, an hour there. Um, but I just stepped away, and I, I got into real estate. I wanted to learn something totally different from swim, bike, and run. And um, I wasn't ready to slide into coaching and keep on talking the same thing I've been talking for the last seventeen years. <laughs> and so I, I went into uh, real estate. It was a hard transition for me, especially to sit in a chair and yeah, have walls, or, walls around you and look out a friggin' window. Uh, it it took me eight years to get through that transition, 
and I'm just starting to get at peace with it. Really? Yeah, it was hard on me. So what was so t- tell us about the difficulty of it? Uh, difficulty is not being Superman anymore. Oh, really? And okay. The difficulty is not having that adrenaline rush. You got five to six days a week from challenging your body. The difficulty was not calling your own shots every day. And the difficulty was um, having to deal with people yep. um, in the business world. It was a wake-up call. I mean, I mean, not to be bragging or anything, but I, I was a superstar for a while, and people would come up to say hi to you. And I mm. loved that. I would mm. say hi back. I'd ask them how they're doing. I totally dug it that people came and said hi to you, and you were the limelight, you know? Mm. And that all changed when you're in real estate. Now you're just another real estate agent. And who are you? And you had to build trust with people. And some people were good people and other people are just uh, a bastard to be with, you know, mm-hmm. in, the, in the business. And so that was part of the hard transition. Um, I still – I love to coach and I love – I still trying to figure out my s- swim stroke and, and how to be good when I'm, um, when I'm training. And I still love sharing that with the people, but I never made it into a business. Mm. Um, did the the motivation of the the, the sales targets and stuff and in, in business did that, did that help you know in terms of motivating you and and a sense of achievement? It's not the same. <laughs> 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 I mean, uh, let, let me put this. Let me step back a bit. I love racing for money. Yeah. Yep. To use your body and to race for money was the natural high for me. You know, you asked earlier on what drove me, and, and God, whether it was freaking racing for pizza, five hundred bucks or forty grand, I totally dug racing for money and making a living that way. Yeah. And but I haven't found the same magic in in real estate. Um, I'll bust my butt in real estate, but God, the, it's I guess it's more thought in an arena that I'm not uh, as strong at of how how to converse with people, how to advertise. You know, I still want to be number one in real estate, and I'll, I'll work seven days a week, twelve hours a day, if that's what it takes. But the business isn't there, um, and for me to do that, so I catch myself twiddling my thumbs at a loss of how um, how to be a better real estate agent, and that's what's been really frustrating for me. Mm-hmm. Whereas in triathlons, man, I, I, you put in your time, and then God gave me a body that would allow me to put in that time. And um, I pulled off some great stuff, and so I was really blessed there. One thing that I noted that I've got quite a strong interest in, you seem to get involved in, um, in triathlon with, with kids, um, and yeah. I, I guess that's through, through your own kids perhaps coming through that. So tell us a bit about that and, um, and what, what you've done there. Um, we have a local triathlon called the Humboldt Tri-Kids Triathlon, and so I'm retired. I got involved with that. And it's still going to this date. We only get about 150 kids out, but it's just I just love watching kids learn how to uh, enjoy what I enjoyed and also learning a life skill. And I love their energy. Um, I also I coach um, at my kids' elementary school, K through eight. Mm-hmm. I coach cross country and I coach track and field. Nice. And I don't know I just have a magic with kids, and uh, I'm drawn to them, and they're drawn to me, and we just have a great time. And it allows me to enjoy being physical again uh, with them. Um, and then my daughter is a phenomenal runner. So I get to be with my own kids and coach at the same time. So it's like a win-win situation. 
just this last year, my daughter won nationals in cross country. Wow. And she's a far better runner than I ever was. Wow. Um, she's running a five minute mile in sixth grade. Wow. <laughs> so, um, so um, that's what I'm doing, and that's hanging out with kids, and, and I'm still coaching that day, and hopefully I'm moving into coaching at the high school level as my daughter becomes a freshman and helping out with a, a squad of, of 40 to 50 kids. Wow. And so I'm really looking forward to that opportunity. One, learning about the person. Two, learning how to make that person fast and uh, dealing with all the high school issues that kids have to deal with. Yeah. I'm really look, looking forward to that, those challenges. You, you say you seem to have an affinity with kids. You know, if you have advice for parents out there who, you know, we, a lot of our listeners are obviously going to be parents, and, you know, what advice would you have for them around sport? Um, look for the things that... Um, look, for the thing, look for the things in a kid that uh, motivates them from within... Because you cannot motivate a kid from without. You can show them things, but it's still got to come from within. And so here's a simple trick. Um, my son doesn't like to run. He hates it. He's, he's the opposite of my daughter. I have twins. And so I invite one or two of their friends to go out for a run, and all of a sudden my son is forgetting about the hate for running and enjoying running with his friends. Yep. And now he's enjoying running. Mm-hmm. And so learning those little tricks to uh, – um, teach kids at a young age how important exercise is as a life skill is is uh, one of the tips to the parents I could give them but and and you know you think I've, I'm very very intense especially when the gun goes off <laughs> but I'm not that way with my kids I, I just I just cheer them hey you're doing great you look phenomenal give it your best you know and say, say, go kill it. You know, instead of just cracking them over the head, say, you loser, go for it. That's not where it's at, mm. you know. Um, try to motivate kids in a positive way, mm. I guess. And, and in terms of keeping up with the sport these days, I mean, do you, do you sort of uh, follow results? Do you, you know, watch Kona, the Kona coverage each year? Or do you just sort of, um, if it's in the news, you see it or you don't go out of your way to keep in touch with it? Um, I'll dabble with it. Um, I like I know that the record was broken last year with mm-hmm. Alexander, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm so glad to see him drop that record. Yeah. Because I think it was uh, a drug-free uh, record break, mm-hmm. or that record that was established, I thought was drug-induced. Mm-hmm. That's my personal opinion. I think it wasn't Luke that had the record before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just don't think that was a natural way of, of setting a record. But I think the way Alexander did was a natural way, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, that would put a smile on my face to see that record and yeah I do watch here and there I don't follow intensely I don't sit on ironmanlive.com seeing who's uh, winning a race but uh, I still open up a traffic magazine and see who the superstars are and how they're doing and and reading what they have to say I do that occasionally nice so so if people are in your area in terms of the real estate side of things whereabouts are you based because obviously we're in New Zealand a lot of our listeners are are elsewhere around the world but in terms of uh, if people want to get in touch with you in terms of real estate I'm in Humboldt County, which is Northern California. Nice. And uh, I'm in the hometown that I grew up in, Arcata, and we service about uh, seven different cities in Humboldt County. And so that's where I'm selling real estate. And then the other thing I'm doing on the side, but still kind of nervous jumping into it, is I still love to coach. And uh, you can find me at MikePig.com, and that's my real estate website, and send me an email. Yeah. But I'm open to working with people who want to pursue their triathlon careers, beginning beginner to uh, pro if you want. 
advice for me. Yes. If, if you were to, you know, hear people, you, I, I often the, the question we often do when I, I train people, um, I work in fitness, so when I train people in fitness, I often the question is, if, if you're in a toilet and all your you know, other athletes walked in the room, they didn't realize you were on the toilet and you heard them talking about you, <laughs> what would be the things that you'd want to hear them say about your career? You know, how, what, how would you like to be thought of as an athlete? Well, I just really enjoyed your opening line, your comments that Maka made, that he was one of the hardest working triathletes out there. That just uh, makes me feel really good inside that Pig gave it everything, and I did. And for people to see that, it just makes me feel good. If there's anything I can take away from the sport is people just seeing a hardworking athlete doing what he loves. Um, I guess that's what I would say or want to hear. Yes. Well, I'm sitting on the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so have you got, um, you know, this, this year ahead, do you still compete at all, even at just a, a slightly more social level? Because I saw you St. Croix, didn't you? I saw you did St. Croix at some stage um, when they had some anniversary year. Yeah. Um, what I like doing now is finding, uh, getting off the beaten path. Yeah. And so some unique things I've done since I retired is, is I ran across the Grand Canyon, spent the night, and then ran back nice. in Arizona. So that was, that was 27 miles one way, 27 back. Yeah. And then I got to uh, do the Leadville 100, which is a mountain bike yeah, race yeah, yeah. Uh, where Lance Armstrong did. And I did that in eight hours. I trained about two months for it. Yeah. Um, and it was so cool. It brought back so many, so many memories of competing because there were 1,600 athletes in the race. And they started us all together, just like the good old days in Ironman where everyone's on the line, at the same mm. line, you know. And Jimmy Riccatello showed up and Paul Huddle showed up. <laughs> so I had some good old buddies in the race and um, just had a ball, just had a ball and, and got to sprint to the finish after a 100-mile bike ride and spent the next 10 minutes trying to find any oxygen I could find to <laughs> bring myself back to life. <laughs> but, uh, it's still in my blood. It's totally still in my blood. But I'm, you know, I, I watch my kids grow up and I, I devote a lot of my time to training with my daughter and my son. And so I don't get out as much as I'd like to. Mm. But um, still loving it. Nice. You have to come down to New Zealand and do the uh, coast to coast with Molina. It's uh, kayaking, running, and biking. You'd love it. Oh, I would love it. I totally love it. And Melina knows I would, especially if he's in the race and I could kick his ass one more time. <laughs> so he's still there. Still there. <laughs> and he'd be saying the same thing about me. You know? he, he's still pumping out 15, 20 hours training a week. He's pretty fit. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm probably about a six-hour, seven-hour guy a week. I'm nice. not no Scott Molina. He was a machine. He was always a machine, and he'll die a machine. You know? Exactly. But, uh, he was incredible. Nice. Well, Mike, thanks so much for your time. We yeah, love, it's been absolutely awesome. We love reminiscing about the years where, you know, I mean, I was involved from about 91 on in the sport, but I love hearing those stories about um, about the good old days. And um, and we love making sure that, that guys like you that helped, you know, found the sport and, and you know, set the benchmark that, that we can um, let people know about you. So thanks so much for your time. Hey, thank you. I really enjoyed the interview and reminiscing with you. So I, I use that quote that where he says it's hard stopping Superman. Yeah. I, I've talked about that so many times over the years. Mm. Like, it's a really fascinating thing to think about, mm. eh? But it's great that he, you know, well, no, it's not great. You know, he had a bloody tough time, yeah. for, you know, when he finished his career. Uh, and great that he managed to dig himself out of that hole and yeah. create another successful career. Yeah, fascinating, eh? Like, mm. you know, like, because that's the thing about, you know, you think of, like, Sporting stars, 
you know, a good, a, a great sporting career is probably 15 years max. Mm. You know, you do get outliers, but most people, you know, in most sports, if you get 15 years, you've done bloody well. Mm. A lot of sports, like I think in the NRL, which is rugby league, the average lifespan of a player is something like 50 games. Mm-hmm. That's the average. No, maybe 26 games. So it's basically a year. Really? Of, yeah. That's yeah. The, of, of the average. Yeah. Now, you're going to get guys who do the 10, 15-year career. But, you know, so – and then and, – and be like an absolute legend. Mm. And then suddenly you're mm. 35. Mm. Nobody's knocking on your door. Yeah. You haven't got a career. You haven't maybe, – I can't remember if, if he – didn't he study or anything like that? But you just got to. He was completely he was a real estate agent. Yeah, that's what he moved into. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, good on him. Well, yeah, like I remember Melina saying, like, like sponsors, sponsors stop knocking when you stop winning. Hmm. You know, it's uh, you know, like it's like, yeah, it's it's really yeah, really fascinating life to go through. Like I remember, like Jonah Lomu, Jonah Lomu, for those who don't know, is arguably one of the greatest, well, most impactful rugby players of all time, um, and you know, struggled. Mm. Big time. Now he had big, big health problems, but you know, like, who are you? And and imagine for the rest of your life talking about what you did in your twenties. Mm. You know, totally. yeah, like, yeah, like that. Okay, uh, let's wrap it up, John. Uh, we've got our fantastic patrons. Thank you for supporting the show. Colette Coasting Andrews, Mike the Swizzle Pizzle, uh, and Peter the Explosion Curry. If you want to become patron, go dub dub dub. I talked up me. Yeah, <laughs> that was nice. a yawn announcement. Uh, me, and then you go through the process you can also get the show emailed to you there thank you for everyone who is a patron we want to say a massive thank you to you guys your support really means a lot to us and helps us keep the show going if you want some coaching go to coachingjohnnewsome.com if you want to do an epic camp epiccamp.com my podcast bevanjabeshours.com my book passionaboutexercise.com uh, if you want to email us imtalkpodcast at gmail.com John one thing oh, what's your goss what's the date today this must be the 10th. So we're back to back next week. Back next week. So what's my gosh? We're in Kaiteri. And one thing we're going to do up there, I'm doing with little Tommy, is we're going to walk the inland track of the Abel Tasman, which I've never done before, which would be quite the you adventure. Mean the, the, the track? The inland track, not the coastal track. Oh, so Abel Tasman is one of the great walks in New oh, Zealand. If you, um, if you get to New Zealand, it's a must. Yeah, so it's uh, it's basically just walking along different beaches and, and a coastal track, aptly but, named. But what's so cool is you walk along this beach and then you go inland and you go kind of up the hill and you're back mm. in. So it's it's a real diverse kind of track. And tip of the day, if you ever do it, make sure you do the extension bit on the end from Totonui Beach to Wainui Inlet, which most people don't do. And I only recently did it myself. Best part of the track. Absolutely fantastic. We're going inland, so we're not going anywhere coastal. You start and finish at the same points, but basically climbing up. Um, and I've got no idea what it's going to be like, but he wants to go on an adventure. So it's going to be two days of pretty strenuous walking. I think we'll be doing about 20, you know, over 20 k's each day, um, up and down. It's going to be good. And that's about it, Bevan. We're back in the studios next week. Did you what happened to me last night, John? What happened to you last night on the... Uh, on the 9th of January, you're looking into the future. Our cat, our cat must have. Flew. Do you have a cat? No, no you don't. don't. Don't get me started on cats. They shit all over my property. Why? Neighbours' cats. Oh, really? Everywhere. It does my head in. Why? And they shit in my. I've got the planter boxes out the back. Yeah. And they just <laughs> dig up the bloody dirt and they shit in my planter boxes with my vegetables. They dig up my vegetables. <laughs> And I've even put, you know, um, you know, chicken wire over the yeah. top of them, and they bloody get in there. And I'm, I'm like, I hope one of you guys gets stuck in there one day, and you get a bloody bit of my chicken wire in your eye, <laughs> because they do my head in. So there you go. Tell me about your cat, Bevan. <laughs> 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 guinea pigs going. Guinea pigs hanging in there. 
Guinea pig is, she's, yeah, she is hanging in there. Oh, you've got one now? Oh, yeah. The other one died in ages, like pre-COVID. Oh, okay. Got okay. COVID before everybody else got COVID. Oh, okay. okay. Just part of that. Well, no, our cat, our cat, our cat's quite a fluffy cat. Mm. It's got massive, like its tail, not, not a word of like, looks like a fluffy duster. Yeah. Like, not a word of like. Yeah. You've never seen our cat because our cat doesn't like people. Yeah. But, it's good because I don't like cats. <laughs> it's a win win. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but they must have fur, like, spewed up a fur ball. Yeah. And I don't remember it, but it was right beside my bed. And then I just remember when like, Joe, like, with a light, <laughs> cleaned up the fur ball. Oh, yuck. <laughs> oh, Joe's such a good mum to her cat. Yeah. But I just remember kind of, I, I'm vaguely awake and there's lights, kind of, she's got a phone light going in my eyes. And, and then she's cleaning up and then and I was like, and, and, and like if let's like let's say I get home and there's a furball on the ground mm. and I see it, but Joe's downstairs or upstairs on You won't see it. It's not it, my like, job. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't see, see it. Oh, Bevan, did you see his furball? No. No, no, no. Nothing to see. Not yeah. my responsibility. So <laughs> I didn't have the greatest sleep, but that's why I was yawning before. That's why. Right, yeah. I reckon I, I, you know I'm gonna get for your birthday? My birthday. Yeah. The same thing you get every year. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. No, I was gonna get your cat. Right. But you, you guys are allergic to cats, aren't you? Yeah, we'll say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Allergy of convenience. <laughs> uh, right, let's wrap it up. I'm Russ. I'm the train hard. Train smart. Kia kia kia. Kia.